This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Wednesday, June 17th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The hunt continues for Matt and Sweat, the escaped New York convicts that the tabs have tabbed. Sweat Matt. No, meet Swat. Anyway, they're the escapees. But don't worry. There are only 800 officers on the case. Forget that. They also have thermal imaging. Yeah, CNN went on a fly-along with some LAPD officers to demonstrate the awesome power of the infrared eye in the sky. Here's a person that's walking on a sidewalk next to the park. We got a couple, we got another walk, uh, jogger. You can tell that was a woman. Yeah, you yeah, it looks like another here. woman. A fugitive trying to crawl away, you would be able to pick it up. Yes. Actually, not so much yes as a subtle variant of yes. No. The answer would be no. Sure, if Sweet Meat, Sweat Matt were brazenly jogging along, maybe propelled forward by the strains of Jody Watley on her Walkman. Remember, they've been in jail for a long time, Sweet Matt has. Anyway, maybe then the thermal imaging would catch them. But I don't think it's going to work in real life. Because to read the Albany Times Union's reporting, the dense foliage may make it difficult for infrared technology to pick up human heat signatures. They quote Raymond Philo. Oh, I love that name, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a crime noir name. And he's a former New Hartford Police Department chairman who teaches cybersecurity and criminal justice at Utica College. Well, anyway, Professor Raymond Philo says, if they're in the woods or if they're undercover or if they're in a hunting camp or if they're in a cave, then you wouldn't be getting an energy signature from the human body. And then another complication is the weather, heavy rainfall and fog will blur the image, making it not well-defined. And the paper goes on to say these prisoners could also dig a ditch or cover themselves in leaves. So there you have it. Tunnels and leaves not only describes their means of escape, but it's also their aids in avoiding detection. On the show today, I spiel about Kim West. Wait, what's her maiden name? I always forget it. Anyway, I haven't been keeping up. And also Jill Duffy on Fitbit wearables, wearable fitly bitlies. But first, Congress. How much do they care? The answer's not what you expect if you're deluded, because it's exactly what you expect. Congress is dysfunctional. Congress is polarized. Congressional members are demographically very different from the people they serve. And as far as Congress's approval ratings, well, John McCain's been making the joke for years. We're basically down to friends and immediate family members at this point. But how bad is Congress? Meaning, how unrepresentative of the will of the people is Congress? Well, Princeton professor Martin Gillens is the co-author of a study that took data from 2,000 public opinion surveys and compared it to what Congress did about what the public wanted. And he's here now. Hello, Professor Gillens. Hello. What was your task? What were you looking to find? I was trying to see which groups within the public Congress responded to. 
whether policymakers in Washington sort of followed the will of the uh, average American or only of economic elites. Okay. I th- I've lived in this country a little while, and I think I know what the finding is going to be. But going in, what did you suspect you'd find? Well, I certainly expected to find that people with more money were going to have more influence. Mm-hmm. But I also expected to find that ordinary citizens would have, you know, at least some ability to shape what policymakers do. And essentially what I found is that they don't. That really policy, to the extent that it tracks any portion of the public, is tracking what the affluent want and bears really no relationship or at least bears no responsiveness to what middle-income Americans want. So, okay, a couple questions here. One is, is it the case that the affluent, and when you say the top 10%, that's not the 1%, that's a 10 times the size of that. But is it the case that what the affluent want is so different from what the public wants? Not always. There's quite a lot of overlap, in fact, but there are important areas where preferences do diverge. Give me a subject where that Yeah, so it'd be, you know, a lot of the things that you'd kind of expect. So, for example, on tax policy, right? Affluent Americans typically want lower taxes on the well-to-do, you know, lower taxes on capital gains, and middle-income Americans think that the rich should be paying more. Yeah. Similarly, with regard to, say, trade policy, people with higher incomes are much more supportive of free trade, the topic that's uh, been very prominent lately, and you know, we're debating now whether to expand some of our trade policies uh, to more of the world. And this is something that's been, for decades, much more popular among the well-off, and arguably much more beneficial to those with you know, higher uh, educations, more skills, and more earning power. Okay, so what you're telling me with those examples is that Congress is less populist than the populists. That's a great way of putting it. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Um, Well, it's certainly not a very democratic thing, and I guess whether it's a bad thing or not depends on what policies you might prefer. For me, if the country was more democratically ruled and policies reflected more the preferences of the middle income, uh, middle class, there would be many things that I would be happy about, but the other things I would not be. So, for example, another area in which higher and lower income Americans disagree is on the sort of social and moral issues like abortion and gay rights. Mm -hmm. And on those, it's actually the affluent that tend to be more liberal. Right. So Congress is responsive to the affluent even on those issues? As a generalization, yes. Now, of course, in states, we see a great variety because some states are more socially conservative than others. But even uh, we see Republicans in some places like New York State, you know, moving to the left on issues like gay rights and gay marriage, in part because their affluent donors are much more liberal than their voting base on those kinds of issues. Well, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, there's pretty good theories about how Congress should work. And one was popularized by Robert Dahl, who died last year. I don't know, the greatest political science professor of the last 50 years. And he's basically said interest groups, not only should we be wringing our hands about them, it's kind of efficient. It's interest groups that gets things done. It's not what a public opinion would show. But the interest groups act as proxies for the public opinion. And that's not a bad thing. He kind of tweaked those findings later in life. But did you look at your findings through the prism of what Dahl was saying? Absolutely. And, um, you know, you're quite right that Uh, Robert Dahl himself came to a different view about the role of interest groups in society and a much less sanguine one uh, later on. And our results bear that uh, sort of the latter Dahl, if you will, his views. And uh, we did find that interest groups like 
affluent citizens had a substantial impact on government policymaking, but not in ways that brought policy more into line with what ordinary citizens want. I have to admit, I am not a regular subscriber to Perspectives on Politics, but your work was uh, thrust out there by a group called Represent.us. And one of the things they claimed in describing your survey was that the opinions of 90% of Americans have essentially no impact at all. Is that, are they saying that fairly? It's uh, not far off, yeah. I think, uh, you know, in, in my work, I've identified some somewhat unusual circumstances where responsiveness is more equal to a broader swath of the public. So to say that there's never any ability of people below the 90th income percentile to shape policy might be a slight exaggeration. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, it's only a slight exaggeration. Well, are there specific types of legislation where it's possible? Or can you put your finger on when does when does the 90% get its say is my question? What we see is when there's a presidential election looming, or when the control of Congress is closely divided and uncertain, that you do see policy responding somewhat more to what the middle class and the poor uh, prefer, although never to the extent that their uh, power to shape policy is as great as those at the top of the income distribution. I don't disagree. If you're data feels right at a gut level, uh, I've looked at it. It's certainly uh, conducted with the utmost care. But I was just thinking about this latest debate that's going on right now about the Patriot Act. I notice that where Congress stands on the Patriot Act roughly tracks with what Americans' opinions are about the likelihood of a terrorist attack and how willing they are to trade liberties for law enforcement. I mean, when the Patriot Act was enacted, the Patriot Act was enacted and Americans were at red alert. Then that eased, and now there's at least an opening for, maybe in an undemocratic way, like a Rand Paul filibuster, to change the Patriot Act. I know it's just one bill, but it does seem to happen pretty often that whenever there is a change in the law, it's more tracking in the direction that public opinion polls are going than not. Well, uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but I think the key question is, um, whose opinion is it tracking? And in this case, with regard to sort of the laws regarding terrorism and um, domestic surveillance, it's actually affluent individuals who are at least as concerned about uh, sort of going overboard and uh, concerned about giving up civil liberties as the middle class. So while I think you're right that both less well-off and better-off Americans have moved in that same direction of you know being more concerned about government spying and civil liberties and so on. It's not clear from that that policy has changed as a result of the movement of the middle class, um, maybe has changed as a result more of the movement of the well-to-do. Right. So, I mean, I think we've just figured out our solution for American democracy. Give up on Congress. We just got to convince the top 10% to think more like America. There you go. Martin Gillens is professor of politics at Princeton University. His research examines representation, public opinion, and mass media. He's the author of Affluence and Influence, Economic Inequality, and Political Power in America. Thank you, Professor Gillens. It's been my pleasure. So there's a quote in the new PC Mag article by Jill Duffy about uh, wearables leading to great health. There's a quote 
about the future that I think hints at the future of wearing things to be healthy. It's this, you're responsible for your health, not the physician. The physician's job is that of the consultant. It's to give you advice. So the idea is if you wear everything, if you wear Fitbits version 3, 4, and 5, eventually they'll be generating data about all aspects of your health, not just the number of steps you take, but lactic acid, stuff about your urine, how well you processed that panini for lunch, questioning why you had a panini for lunch. And Jill Duffy, she comes in here every once in a while wearing things and informing us about the future of wearables. Hello, Jill. Hi, Mike. She wrote the article. So I think we all know the Fitbit. Last time you were here, you wore seven things on your wrists. You talked about what they what they do, what they don't do. What's next? What goes beyond counting your steps and you know giving an estimation of your calories? Yeah, so people largely would call this the quantified self movement. It's about measuring things about ourselves and our lives. And the idea is the more we can measure, the more we can know about ourselves. So I think that in the future, in the near future, we're going to be able to measure things that will help our doctors get a better picture of who we are, where we're going, and how we'll res- respond to different treatments. All right. So what? you have a few devices in front of you. I do. I Tell do. Me. Pick one up. Tell me what it does. So the first one I wanted to show you and talk about is an old school heart rate monitor. This is a chest strap. You wear it just around your rib cage and it measures your heart rate. Uh, Runners and cyclists have been wearing these things forever. They're very uncomfortable. They're about a foot long. They have the sensors you can tell are in the front, and this one's made by Garmin, and they're just an elastic strap that goes around the chest. We've probably all seen them. doesn't really look space-age. looks pretty restrictive. Yeah, and they're kind of uncomfortable to wear. Yep. So the new version of that is to put heart rate on the wrist. So a lot of people know this from the Apple Watch. It has it. Um, it's an optical sensor on the back of a device. I have one here from Mio Global. They're now working with Garmin. They just released a Garmin watch that will have heart rate sensor on the wrist. So rather than wearing it on your chest, you can now wear it on your arm where you can actually see your heart rate data on the screen on the other side. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. If it's on the chest, you can't even see it. Right. If it's on the chest, you've got to. Can we test my resting heart rate? Sure. So you've got to put it on pretty snug, and then you're going to press and hold the button on the left. All right. Here we go. Right. Thus correlating to the most important of the ventricles. Ah, this has to go in. Fits well. Left. Press and hold on the side like this. Hold? It says hold? Yep. Okay. Set. All right. And you'll see there's a light flashing underneath, too. That light will change color as you go into different heart rate zones. Uh-huh. So, again, you don't have to look at the exact number of your heart rate now. You can just glance over, and it will tell you green is a low heart rate zone, uh, purple is a very high zone, and red probably means you need to slow down. Yeah. Well, right now, my interviewing heart rate is a little high. It's 72. So... Now we can measure heart rate a lot more easily. And I think where this is going is we're going to start to find new things that we can measure about ourselves. So I brought in this little stone with a clip called Spire. And this measures your activity, your steps, but it also measures your breathing. So you wear it either on the center of your bra or on your waistband. And I know what would be good for me. feels your chest or your belly rise and fall. 
And when you're calm and focused, it knows that. And when you start to get tense, it knows that. It vibrates. It sends a notification on your phone that says, you're, you're starting to seem tense. You should take a deep breath. That's, there's nothing to help tension more than something vibrating and sending a <laughs> message to your phone. Well, I this really sh- understands people. I wasn't sure it was working. And yeah. then I got in the car and I started driving for about three hours. And sure enough, I got tense. It noticed. It sent me a notification. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I'm clenching my teeth here. I should probably calm myself we down. We were able to do that? I did. Okay, good. Yeah. Another device, so this here is called BSX Insight. This is really for athletes. It's a small sensor that fits into a leg sleeve, a compression calf sleeve. So you wear it and you run a test that used to require blood work. So athletes would go into a lab and run on a treadmill or um, cycle on a stationary bicycle, and they'd increase their speed little by little, and every three minutes or so, somebody would come over from the lab and prick their finger or prick their earlobe, take a blood sample. And what they're doing is they're measuring lactic acid buildup. So endurance athletes need to make sure that their body is able to clear the lactic acid as it builds up. If you push yourself too hard, your body can't do that anymore. Lactic acid builds up, and your body says... We need to slow down. We need to shut this down. So now this sensor is able to read essentially the same thing. It's actually reading a surrogate measure, but we won't get into that. It's shining light through your leg to collect information about your blood. It's actually measuring oxygen in your blood. And by correlation, it's figuring out when that lactic acid is building up. When you're done with the test, it gives you a simple number that says you should run a nine-minute mile. So it's a very, very simple way to capture data that used to require this big, long process. Next thing. What else? So one that I think you would be interested that I uh-huh. think is really fun is about measuring the insides of your body. So I talk a little bit in the article about how I took a blood test. Yeah. Somebody came to my office, drew my blood, and two days later I had a chart that I could look at online mapping out my blood work, and I was skeptical. So I took that chart and all the information and I went to see a nutritionist, Yeah. and I said, help me figure this out. Is this giving me good advice? Because within this chart, there's recommendations, eat more trout, have less beer, try to eat more oatmeal, you know, to optimize myself. Well, trout oatmeal is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> So I take it to a nutritionist, and she told me there are some things that you need to be careful about, and you need doctor's recommendations because not everything is going to change with food. So, for example, if your calcium is too high, there may be a chance that something is wrong in your body that's not clearing out the calcium. It has nothing to do with how much milk you're drinking. So I think that goes back to the point that we need medical professionals to help consult with us about how do we use this information in a smart, reliable way. All right. Now, why did you have your blood drawn? Was was that related to a device? Yeah, well, it's a service. Yeah. So the service is an online platform that allows you to track, track your blood results over time. You can input them yourself or you can have somebody come and draw the blood work and then they'll map it all out for you. Too all much? Right. No, 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 no. It's not too much. I think this stuff is crazy, but what do I know? There's another one called Ubiome, um, which allows you at home to take a little swab of Something in or on your body, we'll say sometimes it comes from toilet paper, you send it in and they will map out your biome, all the the gut bacteria. And lots of people are very interested in this. Then you can compare what kind of bacteria do you have uh, compared to, say, people who are vegetarian. Yeah. 
Right now, I think that's a little nutty. I think that's going too far. But well, it depends what you ate for lunch. If we could do it, if we could do it every day and you can see a change and get antibiotics that you need before you get sick, yeah. before you're laid up for three days, like that's where I start to see an actual useful resource for this. Yeah. The Uber of defecation. You stool. And then, and we have a clip of this, you wearing these uh, workout pants with 10 sensors. Hi, I'm Jill Duffy for PCMag.com, and I'm in this gym testing out a new product from Athos, these smart Capri leggings. They have a bunch of sensors in them that measure how you're working out while you work out, so you can see if you're favoring certain muscles, if you're unbalanced while you're working out, and they take your heart rate too. Most people aren't going to want to wear pants with a butt sensor, are they? No, I don't think so. I think this is really generation one. And when I started to talk to futurist uh, researchers and medical professionals, they all said, this is generation one. This is where we're going to find people who are the early adopters experimenting and playing with this stuff. The more I talked to these people, I found a divide. So the technology people are all about quick innovation, trying crazy things, pushing things to market. The medical community is much more hesitant. Medical they community say, doesn't love disrupting. Yeah. yeah. They disrupting say, is like an aorta or a. if you disrupt most vital organs, that's bad. Yeah. But I think they're a good counterbalance because they're saying we need to be careful. We need to have trials of these things. We need to make sure that the data we're getting is accurate and yeah. useful. So it's nice to see these two communities coming together and pushing one another in new directions. And I think probably 10, 20 years down the line, we're going to have a lot of sensors that are going to be able to give us useful information that we can bring to our doctors. And like, like I said in the article, the doctor then becomes a person who consults with you to yeah. help you figure out what's going on with all this stuff you're helping to collect for them. You know, we don't even recommend mammographies for women in their 40s with no history of breast cancer because we're really coming around to realize the consequence of false negatives. Tests you don't need, worry you don't need. Maybe it accurately detects something small that would have gone away by itself. You would have died of something else anyway. I mean, all these reasons. It seems like all these devices are using technology and jumping on to the worst aspects of unnecessary mammographies or unnecessary prostate screenings. You know, I wonder if, won't it just freak people out unnecessarily? Well, so there's a big distinction between these consumer devices and medical devices and tests, and that's diagnosis. So any device that's making a diagnosis like a mammography would do uh, is considered a medical device and needs to have approval, right? Mm -hmm. So U.S. government regulates that stuff. All the consumer devices will not be diagnosing you with anything. That's really important. And that's what allows the technology to com community to kind of experiment more. So they're not going to tell you rush into your doctor's office, you have diabetes, right? What they are telling you is more information about your lifestyle. So let's say in five years, I go to see a doctor and I'm having problems. I now have four or five years of data that show my doctor exactly how active I am, what kinds of foods I eat, how my weight has changed, how my heart rate's been. So I'm not going in and making a diagnosis, but I am coming in to say, here's some actual measurements that tell you more about my lifestyle rather than me just giving you some anecdotes about my life. Jill Duffy, she's learned a lot about the wearable technology. She writes about it in PC Magazine. Thank you, Jill. Thanks, Mike.
And now the spiel throwing up at the Kardashians. So as you know, I chatted with Kim Kardashian the other day, made news beyond even the Panoply Network. Naturally, many hope the newest West will be named South. But in an interview with an NPR Chicago radio show, Kim 100% shot that down. So on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I had, I thought, a very pleasant chat with a very famous person, a chat that totally conformed with the needs of this comedy news quiz. I thought it was a good booking. When I heard about it, I said, great, because she has a persona that's well-known. She's ripe fodder for good comedy. And she issued a book of selfies, which is fun to talk about. And as a guest, she didn't seem particularly shy or retiring. But really, how do you ever retire when your job is just being alive? And yes, I would say that the resulting chat went pretty well. When I was at the basketball game party, some of the basketball players were taking selfies with us, and I was like, this is like using a selfie stick. Right. Now I know. Because <laughs> their arms are so God gave them two selfie sticks. Two selfie sticks. Funny stuff, right? I mean, I did ask her, and this didn't make it into the final. Andrea, actually, will you be Kim Kardashian? This is what I wanted to say to her. Uh... Kim, one more thing. Uh, yeah, Mike. You know, remember that time, that period, when you wore a lot of velour tracksuits, and as a result, most women in America wore a lot of velour tracksuits? Mm-hmm. And then you stopped wearing all those velour tracksuits? Right. And then America's women stopped wearing all those velour tracksuits? Uh-huh. Not really a question. Just wanted to say thanks. You're welcome. But I did get this part in. I do don't it. like Southwest, though, because that's like... Where, you know, North will always, you know, be better and, right. and be more, you know, she has a better direction. Well, yes, and you're setting, right, you're setting your kids so, up for conflict and to be right. in opposition, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think we'll go with another direction. Really? So I have, because I got a bunch. I got in Swahili, <laughs> Swahi- the word for East in Swahili is Kati. The word for East in Hungarian is Kalet. I could send you these. I mean, are you, are you, do you have an email? Are you on social media? I could. So it's fine, right? It's fine. Were you amused? Great. Were you not amused? That's fine. Were you shocked to the core? Then you might be an NPR listener. Wrong. That's way too far. I think most NPR listeners liked it. But the people who commented on the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me webpage, they were not amused. They were clutching their pearls, or they would be clutching their pearls if the creation of pearls didn't rely so heavily on stressed out oysters. The fifth word of the very first comment on that Kim Kardashian interview was the word strumpet. Her slatternly affect is exacerbated by her ignorant insistence on a bustle that is a vulgarity. The insistence from so many of these listeners that I shall never sully my ears with wait, wait, don't tell me again, or I expect better from NPR. Here, listen to some of these actual comments. So disappointed. NPR is my sanctuary, and now it has been sullied by the vapid Kim Kardashian. Or so dismayed that she has infiltrated my favorite podcast. Here, here, come, meet me on the fainting couch. Contaminated through the speakers. Who is she married to? Maybe that's a clue why she's here. Someone else goes on to say, she and her no-talent husband are exemplars of what is wrong with America's taste in music. 
and celebrity. Here's another one. The thing that attracts me to NPR is knowing I can escape the tawdry circus of the commercial media. For the love of whatever is decent and good in this world, please stop doing this, NPR. Basil, Basil, fetch me the smelling salts. And then someone wrote, it's kind of like if Dick Cavett dumped Gore Vidal and invited Junior Samples to debate Bill Buckley instead. I looked it up. Junior Samples was a guy who used to appear on Hee Haw. He also died in 1983. So maybe you're not up with the current celebrity culture. That's fine. And I am not going to tell you to like Kim Kardashian. I have not, nor will I begin to keep up with the Kardashians. Her no-talent husband, by the way, that guy's extremely talented. That I will say. But let me tell you what is going on. There is a type of NPR listener, and it's a type of media consumer, goes way beyond NPR, that defines themselves by what they are not. To some extent, we all do this, the bands we like, the foods we don't eat, but with them, it's a much huger deal. They're closed-minded, they use affiliation with NPR or Fox or Christian Broadcasting, not to experience a larger outside world, but to congratulate themselves on the purity of their own world. Insularity does not wind up being an unfortunate byproduct of striving for equality, It is the point of the choice in the first place. When I got into radio, there was a trend of getting out of the classical music game. The trend is all but complete. And there was a researcher who was reviled by some because he gave stations good advice if they wanted to increase their audience and thereby serve the public. Can't serve a public who's not listening. This guy's name was David Giovannoni, and he invented a category. He had a description. The category was originally for the people who love classical music on public broadcasting. But I do think it does apply to a certain type of very persnickety news consumer. Here is the description. These types are different from the regular news consumers, the typical news consumers who like debate and ideas, depth and logic. This different type of listener, not so dissimilar demographically, is vastly different psychographically And this researcher dubbed the listener the monk. The monk is, quote, sharply differentiated by their needs and gratifications. And those needs are, quote, to escape from the troubled exterior world and seek an interior serenity. A news consumer might not like the vapidity of Kim Kardashian on her e-show, but at least if they are a fan of this news comedy show, might be curious enough to see what a comedy show does with this figure in the context of comedy. The monk, on the other hand, is driven by a desire to achieve the inner state that allows him or her to make sense of the world. NPR or whatever media for the monk is an escape from the sullied world. It's crabby, it's snooty, and it hates the big booty. Here now, a commenter named Bewo. Is this the girl with the big naked behind that keeps popping up all over? Wow. I get a touch of stage fright when I get in front of a mic, but I'll bet pulling my pants off in front of the world would really cause a case of nerves. To which Lady Lily responded, yep, that's the one, and you can't miss it because it's so big. Gross. I could respond by noting that actually all of us have naked behinds. But of course, what this exchange reminded me most of was this. Oh my God, Becky, look at her butt. It is so big. She looks like one of those rap guys' girlfriends. So to all the monks and all their friends, Becky, and all the valued listeners that I may have offended, 
I am sure that the show will return to its normal high standards. <laughs> that I, as the guest host, will no longer drag it down. And so please enjoy next week's installment where the special guest will be Screech from Saved by the Bell. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi escapes the notice of infrared cameras by staying cool as a cucumber. Sorry, I read that wrong. By staying cool under a catering tray of cucumbers. Joel Meyer, our managing producer, avoids detection by never committing to an earthly form. Executive producer Andy Bowers holds his breath and thinks hard of an Edward Snowden paradise of transparency. The gist can be accessed via the app Yo. You download the app, you subscribe to podcasts, we are podcasting, yo. And you'll get this on your phone, yo, whenever the gist is up. The gist has been known to avoid detection from the infrared by wrapping ourselves in tinfoil and slathering our bodies with sour cream and chives. Okay, I admit it. This was because I played the second baked potato in the off-Broadway version of Red Lobster Fest, the musical. Rex Reed said, I give it a C, food. Frank Rich said, this is why I got out of theater criticism. Thanks for listening.